You're listening to a sermon preached by Pastor Robert Green on Sunday, February 6, 2022 at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information about the church, visit us online at redemptionhill.com. This morning, God's word to us comes from the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. This is God's word to us this morning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. And darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Let me pray for us as we begin our time in God's word. Father, we thank you for your word that speaks to us. Your word that speaks a peace and a joy. This morning we ask that you by your Holy Spirit through your word would help us to see your glory most clearly in the person of your son. We ask that you would do this thing that only you can do in Jesus' good name. Amen. You can go ahead and be seated. There was a Scottish philosopher, I shouldn't say was, live, is a Scottish philosopher named Alasdair McIntyre and Don't think I'm too fancy. I don't sit around reading Scottish philosophy, but I do often read books that people write who actually do read those kinds of things, so they quote it. And in one of those books, they were quoting philosopher Alasdair McIntyre, who said, in order to make sense of our lives, we depend upon a story to provide the broader framework of meaning. I can only answer the question, what am I to do, if I can answer the prior question? of what story do I find myself a part of? So if you were to sit down with me and and, and ask me to tell you my story, there are a number of doorways that we could enter into that conversation through, but at some point to fully understand it, I would have to go back to what most commonly would would be understood as my beginning, and I'd have to tell you about being born two weeks late in January in Charlotte, North Carolina in 1976 because I was determined to be a bicentennial baby, regardless of what that meant. But even then, to really understand my beginning, it would have to go a little bit further because you'd have to understand the story of my mom and my dad, which would then take you back to their stories of being born in Nashville, Tennessee, and the stories of their parents and their families, and the onion layers keep getting peeled until we're talking about stories of peoples moving from lands and and times and peeling back until we really kind of fall short of records beyond the, the 17th and 16th centuries, and we're talking about civilizations, but you understand that even before that, there was more to the story. So it's an interesting thing to, to talk about our story and where it began philosopher and and theologian you might be familiar with named Leslie Newbigin put it this way. The way we understand not only our personal story, but human life depends upon what conception we have of the larger human story. What is the real story of which my life is only a part? Is there a real story That provides a framework of meaning for all people in all times and in all places, and therefore my own life in the world. What New Begin is getting at is that part of what it is to be human is to embrace a a basic story through which you and I understand our world, and from that story begin to cut a path through the way of life that we live. 
a story that begins to answer essential questions that every large story like this has to answer. Who, who am I and where am I and what went wrong and what's the solution? One of my favorite books is called Finding Yourself in the Story of the Bible. And the theologians that wrote that book said this, Christians believe that there is one true story the story told in the Bible. This story provides us with an understanding of the whole world and of our own place within it. It's a big story that encompasses and explains all the smaller stories of our lives. The Bible is not a mere jumble of poetry and history, lessons in morality and theology, comforting promises, guiding principles or commands. It's fundamentally a unified and coherent narrative that records the unfolding of God's purpose. They would go on to write, according to the biblical story, the meaning of our whole world's history has been most fully shown to us in the person of Jesus, which is why we either embrace Jesus and believe that story is true, or we have to then reject Jesus and spurn the whole story as false. But what we can't do, what we simply cannot do is reshape the Bible to suit our own private religious preference. The Bible's claim to tell the one true story of the entire world is central to its very nature. Now that's what you would expect me to read from Christian theologians talking about the Bible and the story of the Bible and the role of the Bible and us understanding who we are and who God is and the story of this world. But keep listening. Again, Leslie Newbegin in his missionary journeys in India spent a lot of time with Hindu scholars and he recorded in one of his books a conversation he had with a Hindu scholar in India who said this to Newbegin, I can't understand why you missionaries present the Bible to us in India as a book of religion. It's not a book of religion. In any way, we have plenty of books of religion in India. We don't need any more. He said, I find in your Bible a unique interpretation of universal history, the history of the whole of creation and the history of the human race, and therefore a unique interpretation of the human person as a responsible actor in history. That is unique, he said. There's nothing else in the whole of religious literature in the entire world to put alongside your Bible. Friends, do, do you believe that the Bible tells the one true story of our whole world? The larger story that provides the true context for the story of your life within it. Well, we're going to start a new series this morning, and I can't tell you how long it's going to take. I can't tell you the exact details of how we're going to do it, so that's nothing new, right? But it's going to be a, a series in the book of Genesis, in particular, Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3, because these are foundational chapters that lay the groundwork for the answers to the questions that every worldview, every larger overarching story, every meta-narrative, if you're into that kind of language, has to answer. Questions like, who am I? Where am I? What's gone wrong around me? And What's the solution to it? But before we begin to dive into that this morning, let me just be clear, we're just going to lay some groundwork. 
So this morning, we're, we're kind of introducing this reality and taking a 50,000-foot view of what we're going to be getting into. And so to go really far back, like to pull the lens way out before we dive in, let's just start with this. Uh, I want you to understand whether you've ever thought about it or not, but there is a logical ordering and coherence to the books that make up the Bible. I don't know if you ever thought about that. But the 66 books that make up our English Bible have a logical order to the way that they're arranged. And it's important as we begin to get into this that you see this at this level before we get too far detailed. So if you've got a Bible, you can take one that's in front of you like this one if it's in the pew. If you want to open it up, let me show you how this works. Let's just start with the New Testament because we're more familiar with that first. Our Bibles are, are broken up, let's say, beyond the 66 books into two larger sections, the Old and the New Testament. And the New Testament starts with the Gospel according to Matthew. So if you're using one of the Bibles that's in the pew, that will be on page... 807, right? So here's what I want you to do. If you go to the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew, put a finger there, and then go right. All the way to the end of what you'll see is called the Gospel according to John, or just John at the top of the page. That's on page 908, the end of John. That section right there are what we call the Gospels. The Gospels tell of the life and ministry of Jesus of Nazareth. They are the, the foundation. The, they are what everything in the rest of the New Testament is referring back to foundationally to understand. You don't have those in the beginning. You don't really understand what's going to be said in the rest. And so after the gospel according to John, there's a book called Acts. You put your finger in the beginning of Acts and go to the end of Acts. Acts narrates the history of God establishing the church and the spread of the gospel through the church. From the time of Pentecost when God poured his spirit out upon his people as he had previously promised and the church was established and the church began to spread throughout the known world and the gospel was proclaimed, Acts narrates that story. It's kind of a history of that. And from there, at the end of Acts, you, you begin to see a series and a collection of letters. It starts with the book of Romans. And these letters are instruction, pastoral instruction to the people and the churches and the pastors in those churches that were established in the story of the book of Acts. So how do we live in light of what we learned about who Jesus was in the Gospels? How do we live in light of the promises of God having come to be fulfilled in Jesus, the transforming of our hearts? Those letters are instructions back to those churches that are being planted and spreading throughout the region. And then you come to the very last book of the New Testament called Revelation. It's kind of on its own right there because it more intensely than any other book that we have in the New Testament speaks specifically about what is yet to come. So there's a logical order to it, right? It's not just random. You've got Jesus, you've got the establishment of his church and the spread of the gospel, instruction to those churches, and a picture and a hope of what is yet to come. Well, the same thing happens if you go back to the Old Testament. So, so go back to the beginning of the Old Testament. The Old Testament also has a logical and coherent order to the way that the books are put together. So if you go to the beginning in the book of Genesis, in the first page of the book of Genesis, you put your finger there and go right all the way to the end of the book of Deuteronomy. Those are five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Those five books are often called the Pentateuch. You may have heard that. One of us may have said it one time. Five, Pentateuch. The Torah, the book of the law, or they're often in the Old and New Testament called the books of Moses. 
These are the foundational books in a similar way in which the gospels are foundational to understanding the unfolding of the books in the New Testament. These first five books are foundational to understanding the unfolding of what's going to happen in the rest of the Old Testament. We get the creation. We get the promises of God to his people, the covenant God makes with his people, the establishment of his people Israel, the giving of his law, the movement of God of his people towards the land of promise that he had given them. And at the end of Deuteronomy, you you get the very next book, the book of Joshua. That begins a collection of books that go all the way, keep going right, to the end of the book of Esther that are called the histories. This is the history of God's people that he established in the first five books, living in light of the promises and covenant and relationship that God had made with his people. You get the land that God had promised. You get the judges who ruled and the cycles of people's sin, the establishment of the kingdom of Israel, the various kings in the kingdom of Israel, the division of the kingdom of Israel. You get the captivity of God's people taken into exile. You get get the history of God's people living in light of God's covenant promise to them. And as you move past that, you get into what's known as the wisdom literature right there, starting with the book of Job and going through the Song of Solomon. And if the histories are just that. They're, they record the histories of God's, of God's people interacting with God and his covenant promises. These wisdom literature, you could probably put in the category of dealing with the experience in the heart, more to say, of, of God's people in light of God's promises in nature and character to them. They're, they're more experiential than they are simply historical. And as you get to the end of that wisdom literature, you come to a collection of books starting that's called the book of Isaiah, And it goes all the way to the end of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi. This is called the section of the Old Testament of the prophets. These were the prophets who spoke the word of God, calling God's people back in the times of the histories, back in the times of the kingdom and the kings and what the historical books record. These are the prophets speaking back into God's people. They were happening in that time, calling them back to repentance, speaking God's word to them. And they're broken up into two sections the major and the minor prophets, you know? And it wasn't that one was more important than the other. It was the major prophets because their recorded books were bigger and longer, and the minor prophets because their works were shorter. And so there's a logical order to the way the books are put together in the Bible. The book of Genesis, let's just biggie on the eye chart, it is squarely situated at the very beginning of the Torah or the very beginning of the books of Moses. Because Genesis in itself means beginnings. And it's at the very beginning of the books of Moses. And they're called the books of Moses because Moses is the fundamental human author that God used to write these books. That's important to understand. So if you had asked any follower of Jesus in the book of Acts, from the time of the book of Acts all the way to, let's say, the mid-1700s, if you had asked a follower of Jesus who wrote the first five books of the Bible, universally the answer would have been Moses. It was not until the mid-1700s that an idea was introduced into Christian scholarship that Moses may have not been the writer of the first five books of the Bible. This came in the wake of the development of enlightenment thought and thinking and philosophy as it began to dominate the the scholarship of the university and the scholarship even theological schools. And a school of thought grew up in theological seminaries called higher criticism. 
And higher criticism being born out of the Enlightenment movement took the lens of rejecting the supernatural premise of the Bible at all in any way and elevated man's reason to the highest standard for understanding. And in the development of higher criticism in the reading of the Bible, in particular, reading the first five books of the Bible, an idea that was called the documentary hypothesis began to grow up. And I say all of this because some of you really are interested in this stuff, and I would love to kind of point you in directions, but if you ever took a religion class in school, in high school or in college, if you ever took a religion class, you were taught that the documentary hypothesis is the only way to understand the first five books of the Bible. And what that hypothesis was is simply this. Moses did not write the first five books of the Bible. There were four separate writers and four separate documents that were written over a period of time, each having its own emphasis, its own political framework around it. And they were later, after the exile, put together by a redactor. Someone who took those four documents, put them together, and that became what, came, what we know of as the Pentateuch or the Torah. This is what I was taught. So when I became a Christian in college, I was at a university that had a, a previous connection to, uh, to a denominational affiliation. They had, they had lost it by the time I got there. But they were still there, so you could still take theology classes in Greek and Hebrew. And I thought, 20 years old, I was like, I mean, that's so cool, I'll go, I'll go learn Greek. It was better than math, I couldn't do math. So I was like, you know, what's the major where I can do that? So I got saved, I changed my majors and I, I took these courses. And this was what I was taught. Anything apart from this or any idea apart from this wasn't even entertained in, in, in the classroom. And the problem with this, and, and we wrestled with it, you know, when we were 20, we, we wrestle with it now when people come to it. The problem with it is that this kind of criticism assumes that our reason stands as a judge over Scripture rather than letting Scripture become its own final arbiter and authority. And if, as the scholars of higher criticism would say, and the documentary hypothesis is indeed what they would say is the correct way to view these books, all you're left with is an ancient collection of ideas. That's all it is. It's just an exercise in, in, in historical curiosity, really. These are just some books about some ideas that a particular group of people may or may not have believed at some point in history. That's all you're left with. So I want you to understand as we begin this journey in these first three chapters and see where they take us as we understand what God is saying, that my presupposition entering into this series together is that God used Moses as the primary human instrument to reveal his message to his people. And part of the reason that I believe that is because I believe that that is the internal testimony of scripture about itself. Even as you read the first five books, and take some time through the coming weeks to, to read through the, the first five books of the Bible. We're doing it now with our community Bible reading as we're seeing Jesus together daily in, in Genesis, but keep reading. You'll see that even in these first five books, there are multiple times where Moses is very clear that he is writing as he is receiving revelation from God or actually witnessing different redemptive acts. Throughout the Old Testament, before you even get to the New Testament, there are multiple times when the Bible itself testifies to Moses being the author. Daniel chapter 9, the law is identified as the law of Moses. It's called the books of Moses in Ezra, Nehemiah, and 2 Chronicles. You get into the New Testament repeatedly over and over again, the same attribution is given to Moses. 
Jesus' disciples, who would go on to write, Peter does it twice, reference the books of Moses, understanding the first five books to have been written by Moses. And Jesus himself in Mark 7 says that for Moses said, honor your father and your mother and whoever reviles father or mother shall surely die. Directly quoting Exodus 20 and Exodus 21. Scholars want to read Mark 7 and say that Jesus was just accommodating the foolishness of his audience. Jesus really understood that Moses didn't and couldn't have written the first five books of the Bible, but he'll just accommodate himself to the people he's speaking to. There's a lot of problems with that. It leaves you left with wondering what other things Jesus just said that were accommodating people who didn't really know what was going on. But you have to understand in these schools of criticism, that's not really an issue for them because the authority of Jesus' words and what he said isn't an issue they wrestle with anyway. There's a problem with these things. But our fundamental presupposition going into this is that God used Moses as the primary fundamental author of the first five books of Scripture, of which Genesis is the beginning. And it's quite a beginning. And before we spend too much time kind of listening and peeling it apart, I just want you to consider for a moment what purpose these five books, these writings might have served in the lives of God's people when they were written. When Moses compiled these five, having put these things together, the first generation that would have these compiled writings was the generation that was going to enter into the land of promise. So I want you, this presupposes some Bible knowledge, so I'm sorry for those that may not be familiar with the story. I'll try to do my best to explain it, but I want for those of you that may be familiar to imagine yourselves as part of that generation that's been in the wilderness, having been delivered from slavery in Egypt. You've been in the wilderness for 40 years. You've been born and you've been raised in that, and you're now standing on the verge of the land of promise that God has given you. I want you to imagine what you may have heard and even experienced through those years, the the various peoples you would have come in contact with throughout those years, the the people of Canaan, the, the Mesopotamian regions, those people, all who already had their own stories that they would tell themselves about who they were, how they came to be, how the world came to be, and why things are the way they are. Stories like you may have learned in school, the Enuma Elish, Battles between junior gods, primary gods like Tiamat and, and Marduk who get in battles and one rips the other in half and the, the blood that spills from the battle becomes that which forms the earth. Stories like this that narrated those people's understandings of who they were and, and how they came to be. And all through their wanderings, the generation of Israel were constantly confronted by these stories. They were constantly tempted by these rival stories, tempted by these rival gods. Those cultures all had their own stories of understanding. And don't forget, the previous generations, they had been enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. At that time, arguably the most developed philosophical cosmology of the world and its understanding in the known world at the time. Moses himself was schooled in the courts of Egyptian education and and understanding. What might have been the purpose and the role when Moses ordered these books, wrote them down, put them together the way that he did to deliver them to the generation that's about to enter the land of promise? One of the primary purposes for 
Moses compiling these the way that he did under the inspiration of God was to give his people a clear history that they might be able, one, to combat in their own hearts and lives falsehood with the truth, but at the same time going into the land to encourage continued faithfulness to the faithful God. That it wasn't a bad idea, it wasn't wrong to follow God out into the wilderness and then to obey him as they cross over into this land, into the unknown, into what was going to happen. It wasn't a bad idea. We don't need to go back to Egypt. No, this is the story. Throughout their time, as they would enter the land and move on, they were going to continue to be constantly tempted to reject their faith in the faithful God or mix it with others. So imagine being a part of that generation and hearing the, the books read, hearing the stories read, gathering with your family or with your people, and you're hearing the stories read, and you hear, in the beginning, God. The beginning of what? Well, not God. He didn't have a beginning. No, it's the beginning of the cosmos, but even right there in the beginning, God, you're confronted with the single most fundamental issue as we come to this story. And it's not the question of when, it's the issue of who. In the beginning, God, their God, Israel's God, the one who creates the only uncreated being. See, this is the ongoing rhetoric of the prophets and in the histories of the, of the craziness and the falsehood of the gods and the stories of the nations that Israel kept being tempted by and falling prey to. These gods are created with trees. They're so foolish. Go read Isaiah. Foolishness. They had to cut a tree down, carve it out, and burn other things to make this thing. No, as God's people would be together and the story would be read and their heart would be restoried and regrooved to, in the beginning, God. Singular. And the singularity matters. Unlike the stories that were confronting them in every direction, their God didn't need a work crew. The singularity matters. And we'll get to it in the coming weeks, but... Their God created. That's a verb. It's an action. He's an acting God. He, he isn't merely there. Like, it's not that he merely is. It's that he acts. In particular, we'll see, he speaks. And when he speaks, in, in contrast to the result of the stories of the nations around them, all that they can see when they look up or when they look down. That's how the heavens and earth are understood in the language. That's the, that's the cosmology of the day. All that you can see when you look up and all that you can see when you look down. That's the heavens and the earth. Unlike the stories that were surrounding them constantly, all of that wasn't the result of some violent confrontation between rival gods who didn't like each other or drunken fits of junior gods who were mad at other people. No, 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 no. It was the intentionality of this God who acted. And all that we can conceive and see, the heavens and the earth came into being. And it had a moral quality to it. 
over and over, we'll see that it's good. So again, try, if you can, to put yourself in their situation and you're hearing the stories being told. You're hearing it being read. You're, you're back together as God's people and the, the book is being read. And Think about just that reality, the, the moral quality to his creative act and what that would mean for your own understanding of your own dignity and your own reality. Right? For generations, you had been nothing but cogs in Pharaoh's machine. That was how you were understood by the prevailing civilization of which you were a part of. 400 years of slavery, you were nothing, not human. You were just part of Pharaoh's machine. And then you hear his words that God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. He blessed them and said, be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea, birds of the air, and every living creature that moves on the ground. That's not what you tell cogs in a machine. I mean, how different is that from the prevailing idea of what they were worth for 400 years? I mean, today, again, uh, it's my, my minor soapbox, we'll get to it in the weeks to come, but... This story is the only true fundamental foundation for any real current discussion about human rights or human dignity, about what lives or if any lives matter. This is the only story that gives it a real conversation. In fact, a contemporary atheist, Yuval Harari, he literally calls human rights a Christian idea. He calls it a Christian story. This is what he says. He says, the old, these things, human rights, only makes sense if you believe that all human beings are created or made in the image of God. So what that means is that means that even right now, this week, you and I can't really have a truthful, reasonable discussion about China, about the Olympics, about human atrocities, about genocide, about the Uyghur people. If we simply believe that we're all just animals, random products of time and chance, and we happen to have a larger prefrontal cortex than monkeys, what difference does it make then in the conversation? Again, it's just reality. And I love it when the world around us wants to talk about these things because a lot of people don't want to talk about right now. They usually want to turn on TV and watch snowboarding. But a lot of the world wants to talk about what's going on, and that's amazing. But you have to realize they're talking about that thing in spite of their view of the world, not because of it. And we live with a massive amount of dissonance in our own minds and our own hearts. But this story matters. It would have mattered to God's people as they understood who they were in light of who he is as they were getting ready to enter that land and as they were living in that land just as it does to us even now. In the beginning, God created everything that is when you look up and you look down and it was good. And even beyond, as we see, as we get into the story, it's not simply a heartless creation, but there's a connection and an intimacy with his creation. And he did all of it freely. He wasn't compelled by any outside agency or force. He wasn't constrained to do it. He did it freely because he willed to. Just the first couple verses. But there's so much more in the inspiration and the purposes of God. It's so much more than that. As you consider the way that Moses arranged the stories and 
put the material together for the generation that was about to enter into the land, it becomes very clear that Moses wanted God's people getting ready to enter the land of promise to understand their deliverance from slavery in Egypt and their entrance into the land of promise as nothing short of a new creative work of God. See, it's this story in the very beginning that Moses intends to give shape, context, and understanding to the story of God's activity in the lives of his people in that moment. It's nothing short of a creative work of the one true God. It's the framework for understanding what was going on in their lives in the hand of God. Just listen. Now, I'll just give you an example. Again, we've got weeks to go through this. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, the song of Moses, Moses says this, in a desert land, the Lord found him. Talking about Israel, his people. The Lord found him in a barren and howling waste. Barren, we'll see in the weeks to come. It's the exact same word in Hebrew for formless from Genesis chapter one. When God found his people, they were in a formless waste, a formless void. He shielded them and he cared for them. He guarded them as the apple of his eye, like an eagle that stirs up its nest and hovers its wings over its young. Exact same word used in the beginning of Genesis. That spreads its wings to catch them and carries them on its pinions. The Lord alone led him. No foreign God was with him. In the formless wasteland, Speaking of Egypt, God acted in his presence. He hovered with his people. You see, Moses saw direct parallels between God's work in creation and God's deliverance of his people. He moved, he acted, he hovered. Creation was a paradigm. A a, a pattern for explaining what God was doing for his people in their time. Old Testament professor Richard Pratt says it this way, it was a mighty act of God delivering his people from chaos, now hovering over them on the edge of the land. God's work intentionally here is bringing his desired order back into the world. And as we'll see in the coming weeks, just as God completed his original creation and rested, so too did Moses want God's people to understand that God was moving his people Israel from the chaos of Egypt into the land of promise where the fullness of their Sabbath rest may be lived. Deuteronomy 12, Moses tells them, you're going to cross the Jordan and settle into the land that the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. There he will give you rest. Same word we'll find in Genesis 1. From all of your enemies around you so that you'll live in safety. Then the place, then to the place the Lord your God will choose as a dwelling for his name. There you come and bring everything that's commanded. Your offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes and special gifts. All the choice possessions you vow to the Lord. See, we'll see as we go through this, we've talked about it before, that Sabbath is not just a day of rest, but it's this reality of worshiping and celebrating at the place where God literally, for his people in that time, would place his name. Moses said, God's going to be with you. He's going to put his name and his dwelling right here. And there's going to be in this land the rest that God has promised as you're with him. 
Friends, we're going to have to be careful as we begin to work our way through these chapters to not get tripped up asking Genesis questions that it wasn't primarily written to answer. We will touch on those things, I promise, but if we get tripped up on those things, we're going to miss the beauty of what was intended to be revealed. See, Genesis 1, 2, and 3, they they don't just set the the stage for for Israel to understand God's salvation work in their life, God's delivering work in their life through the lens of creation. The New Testament is very clear that Genesis 1, 2, and 3 set the stage for you and I to understand a much greater redemption story, the salvation and the deliverance that comes from Jesus. You see, just as Israel was to see their deliverance in light of God's creative work, the New Testament writers looked at our salvation and deliverance from sin and through Jesus in the same framework. Watch this. Literally, the Gospel of John starts by situating the readers and the listeners in the story of creation. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. John literally seats us in the story of creation to even begin to understand the incarnation of Jesus into this world. God was moving against the sinful darkness of the world. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Paul will carry the same pattern in 2 Corinthians chapter four when he says, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness has made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. See, Paul is saying to the church, the same glory God displayed in the appearance of the light in the beginning was also revealed in Jesus in his coming into the world of darkness. And it's in his coming and in his life that God is delivering the world from the chaotic darkness of sin and death, the formlessness and void of sin and death. It's the process by which God will remake his creation into an eternally life-giving place where he will dwell with his image bearers for all of eternity. And the fullness and finality of the Sabbath rest and joy that God has promised will come to being. That's where we're headed. It's why Paul could say, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Anyone who has come to Christ in repentance and faith, literally, you have to understand it. They want you to understand it. It is the pattern and paradigm of an entirely new creative act. This is the role these stories play. The opening chapters of Genesis, they're they're more than just a historical record of things that happened a long time ago. Friends, we've got to understand as we go through this, they're a portrait of what God has done in Jesus, is now doing in and by his spirit in our lives day by day, and the promise of what he will one day bring to its fullest and final completion when Jesus returns. This is the pattern that we begin to see laid out in these earliest chapters. And so just as Moses sent Israel into the land with this account of God and his faithfulness, that they might continue 
that they might live in light of God's faithfulness and promises in the face of discouragement and temptation in every way around every corner. So now you and I on our side of the cross have this same pattern, this same paradigm, this same overarching story when we're facing temptation and discouragement to understand God's gracious work in our lives is nothing short of an entirely new creative work of his power. And when it feels like it did for the people of Israel, maybe it would have been better back in Egypt. Maybe it would have been better over here. When you and I face similar discouragement and temptation, it's the story. The one true story of all peoples and in all times and in all places of the God who in the beginning unconstrained freely acts and freely loves. It's the same story as we understand his work of grace in our hearts and in our lives. There are going to be a lot of things that we're going to come into contact with in this. We're going to be stretched by a number of things. We're going to be challenged by a number of things. But I want us to understand at the outset of the series, series, this, this isn't about accumulating more knowledge, more historical understanding. It's not about accumulating even more understanding in light of contemporary struggles and contemporary challenges. It's not more understanding for understanding's sake. We miss it if that's all it is. But while we're going to better understand who we are and the world that we live in as we understand this story, the real goal isn't more information but deeper worship. That's the real intended purpose. Deeper worship worship of the one true God who has shown himself to us most fully and dearly in his son. It's to him that we prepare to respond this morning. And so here's what we're going to do as is our our custom here. In just a moment, I'm going to pray and then we're going to give you a couple of minutes to reflect on God's word. And As you reflect, consider what God by his spirit might be stirring in your heart as you've heard his word and been confronted by his word this morning. How might he be calling you to respond? And then for those who have believed upon Jesus in repentance and faith, you'll be invited to come forward and remember his life, his death, his resurrection. In hope, remembering the full and complete Sabbath rest that is still awaiting us upon his return as you come and receive communion. You'll be invited to come forward and take a piece of bread and dip it in the cup, remembering his body broken and his his blood shed for your sins. Then we'll sing and we'll celebrate before God sends us out from this place as his people. So let me pray for us and then we'll move into a, a time of responding to God and his word. Father, we thank you this morning that you are indeed the one true God who speaks. Or that we're not left to our own reason, we're not left to our own speculation, we're not left to our own determination, we're not left to our own grit. But you have spoken to us most clearly and fully in your Son. And you continue to speak to us by your word and your spirit. So this morning, Lord, in celebration of your goodness and independence upon your steadfastness and faithfulness, 
we ask that you, by your Holy Spirit, would enable our hearts and faith to hear your voice and your word. So many stories fighting for our attention. So many stories fighting for our trust and affection. So many stories trying to re-narrate our understanding of who we are in the world that we're in. We ask this morning that you, in the goodness of your grace and the power of your Holy Spirit, would give us ears to hear your voice and your story. That we would see your glory most clearly in it in your Son. And that a deeper delight in you and a heart towards you would be the fruit that would come of it. We ask this morning that you would do that in Jesus' good name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon preached by Pastor Robert Green at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information about the church and to hear other sermons like this, visit us online at redemptionhill.com.